Hey, this is Mathilde Moyel and welcome to the Ogayana podcast. Today with Fashion Revolution founder, Carrie Summers. Waiting to turn the calendar page for the 24th of April so we'd finally be able to air this interview on this special day. On this date, in 2013, the world witnessed a horrific disaster when the clothing industry building in Rana Plaza in Bangladesh collapsed and over 1,000 workers lost their lives. After the initial shock of this happening, our podcast guests saw the collapse as an opportunity to get clothing companies all over the world to wake up and become more transparent as to where their products were made and under what conditions. With over 20 years of experience with her own brand, as well as research into the textile industry and fair trade, the idea came to her when taking a bath. Now, Fashion Revolution is run in over 100 countries and we are very excited to welcome to our podcast in a slightly distorted version from Singapore to England with a bit of authentic hammering going on in the background, founder of Fashion Revolution, Carrie Summers. So welcome to the Orgayana podcast, Carrie Summers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking part in the interview. Uh, this is going to be our first one long distance, but um, hopefully it won't affect the feel of the interview too much. Um, Carrie, you are approaching the sixth birthday of Fashion Revolution, which also means that it's now six years ago that the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Bangladesh. Do you feel that people are forgetting this with time, like making your cause a harder one? Or has it become more powerful through these years, do you find? Um, I, I feel like it's becoming more powerful. I think there the was a danger and I think we were concerned. And you know, that, that's really why we formed Fashion Revolution to start with. We knew that so many people couldn't die in vain unless there was a reason to remember those people. Yes. And all of the other people, the thousands of other people who have died in the name of fashion in smaller disasters where 100, 150 people have died, we, yeah. we knew that it would not that those people, the death of those people had to lead to lasting change in the industry. And we are seeing fashion revolution, um, the, the movement globally, and just generally levels of transparency amongst brands and retailers increasing year on year. I think there's a lot more understanding now mm -hmm. about transparency, about why it's absolutely fundamental for, for business. And so I think think we're certainly going to see a lot more participation this year certainly from brands and and retailers and hopefully from the public as well well that's good to hear but how about the um, how about the companies obviously in particular uh, the ones who house the workers in the plaza do you see the improvement on their part or do you think they're mainly mainly doing like greenwashing which obviously we also see in this industry do you mean the factories themselves yes. that house the workers? Yes. So I, th I think the factory owners are in a really difficult 
position. I was in Bangladesh um, at the sort of end of 2017, and I met with several factory owners. And on the one hand, they're expected to meet the, the high costs of remediation. They're expected to meet higher wages for the workers in their factory, yeah. as well as the good factories are providing things like childcare facilities, um, ways for people to get subsidised food and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of brands haven't been helping with the cost of remediation. They're expecting the factory owners to bear that cost themselves. And then at the same time, I heard that the factory owners are receiving between three and 5% less for their orders every year from the brands and retailers. Oh. And you know this just isn't feasible. This isn't feasible right. on an annual basis, let alone on a sort of a base, the basis of accumulation over the years. We can't expect the factory owners to receive less every year and at the same time to meet these high costs of remediation and to pay a fair wage to the workers. So this really needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we need to be paying a little bit more for our clothing and we need to find you know, the factory owners need to pay more. And it really is very little. I mean, it's been estimated that in about an extra 25 pence, maybe sort of 30 cents oh. on the cost of an item of clothing made in Bangladesh yes. would be enough to make all of the buildings safe and pay for a living wage. For 25 cents for a piece of clothing, right? Yeah. So it really is, it's very, very little. I mean, the cost of, of labour is just, you know, it's just a couple of percent on the cost of a garment. So actually in order for people to be able to live and work in dignity without fear of losing their lives, it would be the cost of like buying a bag full of clothes from a cheap retailer and it would just be the cost of going and you know, having a cup of coffee in Starbucks afterwards. Yes. Probably. So we're talking about very little in the way of difference. It's uh yeah it's it's really really worth thinking about um <laughs> when you buy your clothes. I'm um, so Kerry, you have representatives for Fashion Revolution all over the world, and you're obviously putting a lot of pressure on fashion labels um, by asking them who made their clothes. Um, so can I ask you, have you busted any companies? I don't know if you can use that expression, but busted any companies, so to speak, through this campaign? You know, obviously. Uh, by people asking these questions and, and, and um, asking uh, the companies who made their clothes where it's from. Yeah, I mean, that's very much not our approach. We set out from the outset to be mm. a positive and inclusive campaign. Right. So we don't target individual companies negatively mm. because we think that the best way to to improve standards is to instill probably a sense of competition amongst the brands and that's very much what mm. the fashion transparency index does brands are starting to see that similar brands in their sector are scoring more highly disclosing more information yeah. and i think that is really pushing the laggards to move so for example i think in the first couple of years of the fashion transparency index we had seen a lot less disclosure from the luxury sector. Mm. Whereas in last year's index, we saw the highest increases in score between 7 and 11% across a number of luxury brands. And you know, this year, Chanel have, pu have published their first ever CSR report. Okay. And so you know, we, we are seeing that sense of competition. I've had luxury companies coming to us saying, well, look, this luxury, how did this luxury company score so well in the index? What are they doing that we're not doing? Right. And I think it really does, certainly across sectors, it instills a, a real sense of 
competition. And we saw that as well in our first national index, which we released in Brazil. I was out there in October and I had a brand who said, we want to be the first brand in the world to score above 60%. And I think you know, brands are realizing that actually once you start to become transparent, it's hard at the beginning for those first brands who were transparent before other brands like H&M, you know, they really were sticking their head above the power pet and they got all of the fire. But now actually, you know, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. And with tools coming online, like the new open apparel database, if the brands aren't publishing the information themselves, if they're not publishing their own factory lists, then the consumers can find out that information anyway. And so it's much better for the brands themselves to be proactive because then they can also reduce and manage their own risks. I think the other thing actually to mention is also that we, we do need to change the whole industry model because now even six years on, the industry is still operating in broadly the same way yeah. um, that, that enabled the Rana Plaza factory to collapse in the first place. It's reliant on auditing for its basic compliance. So yeah. we do need to see a shift in the industry model and we need to see much better procedures so that we know that policies are being put into practice. When we look at brand policies and, you know, we, we aren't passing judgment in the Fashion Transparency Index. We're giving them a score whether they have a one-line policy or a four-page policy. Um, And, you know, that's not our role. We're just ranking them on whether they have a policy. But, you know, somebody might just have a one, two-line policy on child labour, whereas other brands will have so many procedures about, you know, how do you put this policy into practice? Um, You know, what should the factory owners be doing? What are the steps you should take to ensure that child labour isn't present in your factory? Yes, and and you travel to factories and you speak to people in in high places, you know, quite often. Could you try and tell us um, about maybe some of the more shocking experiences you've had, like on the floor or with the decision makers, just to kind of put into perspective what we're dealing with here? Yeah, and I I think it has to be said a lot of the time when I do travel to countries like Bangladesh, Haiti, and I... I'm asked to visit garment factories, they would tend to be the better garment factories. Um, So, you know, I'm invited in. And actually, Bangladesh has some of the best factories in the world. It now has probably the safest factories in the world. It has the highest number of green factories in the world. So there's a lot of really great factories now in Bangladesh, probably compared to a lot of other countries where we really need to see conditions improve is further down in the supply chain. So in Bangladesh, for instance, I went to visit the tanneries and I was told by a union leader there that only 5 to 10% of the shoe and footwear um, facilities in Bangladesh actually have even adequate working conditions and health and safety standards. And in the tanneries, they were there was effluent just flowing out into the drainage ditches straight out of the river where there was a red-listed river dolphin. The effluent treatment plant wasn't fully functional. There was animal tails on the ground. Mm -hmm. There was underage workers. There was no health and safety equipment at all. And I was told that brands never visit the tanneries. And this is where we're seeing a lot less disclosure. So in the index, we found that only 
18% of brands were disclosed in their processing facilities. Mm -hmm. This is up from 14% the previous year. So a lot less disclosure in terms of subcontracting processing. And that's certainly something where we do need to see change. We know that exploitation thrives in hidden places. So we need to see brands do much more to to disclose what's happening in the lower levels of their supply chain, right down to where the raw materials come from. Right. And, and when you say, uh, you know, the, the conditions are not up to standard, what does this mean? I mean, what does this mean for, for the general worker? Um, what, are, what, are the, what are bad conditions? Well, I mean, obviously, in something like a tannery, you're going to be dealing with toxic chemicals like mm. chromium. Um, and they, the workers were there. They had no masks on, no gloves. No aprons, shorts, right. bare legs, no shoes. Yeah. So, you know, th these are the kind of chemicals which they're going to be absorbing through their skin and they're going to be inhaling. So what happens to a worker who will try and, and do some revolt or, you know, that doesn't have a union and, and try and, and tell, you know, the company owner, the factory owner um, that these conditions are not OK? Um, have you had any experiences what, what will happen to um, a worker like that? Um, I haven't had direct experience of that, but we certainly know anecdotally that if people are speaking up, whether that's as part of a union or, or not, not within a union, but they're speaking up about conditions, then you know potentially they are at risk of being discriminated against, of being fired. Um, you know, we've seen and heard about cases of harassment, abuse, discrimination right. when the garment workers do speak up. So we we know that, that happens. Yeah. Okay, so, so Carrie, if we can just zoom in a little bit um, to you, because with our podcast guests, we always ask them, what is your mission in life and why? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your life was like before Fashion Revolution and then what triggered you to act how you did after the collapse happened in Bangladesh. Yep, I'm like, I think about... In, in terms of my sort of two different careers within fashion, both of them have happened really in a very accidental manner. Certainly neither of them were planned. Initially, I had done, I, I'd taken a master's in Native American studies and I was studying the sort of indigenous cultures of the Andean region. And I went to Ecuador to look at the textile industry and how much it had changed since pre-Columbian times. So I looked at sort of weaving, spinning, natural dyes and that sort of thing. And I had a fully funded PhD ahead of me, but I had several months over the summer and when I was in Ecuador, I met two cooperatives and they both experienced arson attacks because of the threat that, that Formies a cooperative posed to the middlemen who were controlling the wool trade at the time, both the, the raw materials and buying the finished knitwear. And right. it was at the time when Ecuadorian those sort of chunky wool jumpers were really, really taken off. So mm -hmm. um, I set up my brand Patch Cootie really initially as a summer holiday project inspired by reading Anita Roddick's biography one day and thought well if she can do this for the beauty industry mm -hmm. with no no experience of beauty but just a desire to see yeah. a change then what's to stop me from doing something similar in fashion with no experience at least right. in my summer holidays and then of course by the time it got to September and I could see the difference it was making to the families to the community they were actually able to pay the matriculation fees to send their children to school and I knew that I had to carry 
mm-hmm. carry on with Patrickuti. I mean, after that, it got a bit messy. I had death threats and I had all my money stolen. But really? I sort of yeah, persevered and, you know, Patrickuti was selling in some of the foremost luxury stores around the world, sort of London, Paris, Milan Fashion Week. And the brand still continues. My husband runs the brand mm-hmm. now. But I... Um, so you had a yeah, rough start well, well, <laughs> into this. It was a really rough start. But I mean, I'm not one of these people who is, is easily daunted. I was really determined to, yes. to see that persevere. And, you know, fashion revolution in a similar way. I wasn't actually looking to do anything to make a difference. Like everybody involved in, in fashion, and particularly in the sort of ethical, sustainable arena, I was really shocked to see yeah. the the Rana Plaza factory collapse. At the same time, we knew that this was inevitable. We knew a disaster of this scale was, was on the card. So what didn't come as a great surprise, but it was incredibly shocking. And for me, what was particularly shocking was to see the fact that brands really didn't know what their relationship was with that factory complex. Yeah. And at Patrick lots of the work we've been doing, we'd actually been a pilot for three different projects. We were the first brand in the world to be fair trade certified by the World Fair Trade Organization. But we were also a pilot for the EU's GeoFair Trade project. And we traced our Panama hats back to the GPS coordinates of the weavers' houses, where the straw was processed, and right back to the parcels of land on the community-owned plantations where it, it grows. So I knew transparency was important. I knew traceability was important. And I thought, if anything, well, you know, this is going, people are actually going to finally wake up as to why we need a more transparent industry, because people really weren't talking about this six years ago. Mm. Um, And I wasn't thinking about doing anything as a reaction to it, but I literally had a bath two or three days after the collapse, and the idea for Fashion Revolution hit me in the bath, the name, the idea of doing something on the anniversary, and it seemed like a good enough idea to get out of the bath and do something about it. So I always feel like it wasn't my idea. I was kind of the conduit for the idea, but it certainly wasn't something that, that I sat down and thought about. Right. Well, it was, it was definitely a bath that, uh, that made a very, very big change. Um, <laughs> it certainly was, yes. <laughs> well, good, good thing you did that. And you have been fighting for these standards and the better standards for clothes workers for these six years. Do you think your mission has changed in the past few years, obviously with all the knowledge you've gained as well in the process? It certainly has changed. I mean, initially we needed to focus very much on the health, the safety, mm-hmm. the human rights. We had our fantastic project we worked on with microfinance opportunities called the Garment Worker Diaries, yes. which was the biggest ever survey of garment workers in India, Bangladesh and Cambodia. So 540 workers surveyed every week for an entire year. So really fascinating data. That's all on our, our website. So initially it was very much about the workers, about the human rights. And gradually over the last couple of years, we've been able to bring in more of an environmental angle which is you know it's it's so important for instance we know that you know the fashion industry is the main cause of microplastics primary and secondary microplastics in the ocean we know the fashion industry's emissions are higher than international air travel and and um, sea transportation 
combined. So it really is, you know, it's an incredible polluter. It has an incredible environmental impact, both in the producer communities, when you look at the raw materials, all the way through to the, to the final, you know, wash phase, consumer use phase and disposal. So we have to start addressing the environmental impact as well. And I think since we started, we've seen a lot more balance in terms of fashion revolution addressing both of these issues and they're very much interconnected yeah it's all it's all very interconnected um what's going on and obviously plastic is, is as you just mentioned a very big focus um especially out in asia where um where we're based so, yeah i mean one of the things i've i've yeah. just heard i've just been accepted onto x expedition which is an all females all-female sailing crew and there's a round-the-world trip starting this year and I'm actually on the trip next year sailing from the Galapagos Islands to Easter Island through the South Pacific gyre where which is known as the South Pacific garbage patch so I will be part of that team looking at plastic in the ocean obviously the impact of the fashion industry whether that's microfibers whether that's the shoes from flip-flop the soles from flip-flops and you know other aspects of, of the larger plastics which pollute as as wow, well that so that's going to be really fascinating gathering that f- sort of first-hand evidence of our impact on the oceans you know in the middle of the pacific in places like easter island where you know, the, the, you know there is an incredible impact of the, you know our, our rampant consumption both of, of you know food water bottles and and clothing and everything else which contains plastic in Singapore we uh, there's, there's all the talk is about zero waste at the moment and um, it's also about you know um, refusing obviously um, everything and not just buying sustainably um, and I'm, I'm just curious because this has obviously been a big thing in the last um, three months so there's all this, also this decluttering fashion. And what is your take on this? You know, is the Conmarie thing a good thing, or or what is what is your view on this? I mean, I have to say, I haven't seen the program. I don't have a television, and I haven't caught up with this on on the um, catch, yeah. catch up TV. But I understand the the premise of it. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think again, you know, it, it goes back to not having anything which is is not useful or beautiful, and you know, th- this is been something that people have practiced for decades it's not something new and we've got to learn to value our clothes and love our clothes and you know yes occasionally you will need to buy basics but make sure there's a really beautiful basics I mean I've just commissioned you know plain black top and I really you know struggle to find something which is you know a plain black functional t-shirt so I've asked a sustainable designer in London to make one for me yes it might be twice the price but it's really not costing me that much to have something bespoke in a sort of silk mixture which is you know something which I know it's going to fit me perfectly and it it will last and it's going to be part of my wardrobe forever and I'm really careful about what I I buy Um, I've traveled to Mexico quite frequently Mm. now it's a country I love and when I'm there that's where I'm buying most of my clothing I know I can work with local designers who are working with local artists local communities who are fairly paid and I can buy beautiful embroidered handmade clothing and actually commission things in the colors I want as as well but we don't have to do that overseas you know I've had plenty of bespoke clothing made for me in London Mm -hmm. and it's really not that expensive it's really not that much more than buying something you know it, yes it's a lot 
um, more expensive than buying maybe fast fashion, but it's an awful lot cheaper than buying luxury. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly a mid-price range. And I think there's a lot we can do to actually buy unique, beautiful things and put them in our wardrobe and invest in things that we know we're going to love and they're going to last for life. Well, because I was going to ask you, um, as I said before, Ogayana is founded in Singapore and, and in, in Singapore, um, shopping is a big part of the culture. So if you were to advise a person who's done most of her or his shopping in Zara, H&M, who's completely new to thinking about fashion habits, where should they start if they want to become conscious shoppers, do you think? I think people should start within their own wardrobes initially. Mm. So you need to look at what, what you have, what you're not wearing, what you could potentially bring to a clothes swap. They have some you know, great clothes swaps mm-hmm. events. I know Fashion Revolution Singapore yes. often do clothes swaps. And so, you know, bring things along to a clothes shop. If you've only got designer clothing, then get together with some friends who have also got designer clothing and do a designer clothes, clothes swap. We don't want to bring, you know, your lovely Gucci top and swap it for a Zara skirt. So, you know, there's definitely different ways of of doing things look at how you can combine things differently I mean what my daughter and I often used to do was to look at the season's trends lay all of our clothes out and think well how can we wear our clothes in a different way and often that means that you will wear things more and differently and you will actually make more use of your wardrobe a lot of the sort of lovely weepeels I got from Mexico they're traditionally summer tops but I'm looking at well how can I wear them what tops can I wear right. underneath them? how can I combine them and make sure that I can wear them all year round <clears throat> they're too beautiful just to wear on the rare occasions when we get some hot sunny days up in the north of England so I, I think that's a good start yeah. also learn to learn to mend learn to repair on the Fashion Revolution YouTube channel, we have lots of different um, hack videos. We have tutorials. So if you want to learn how to mend that hole in your jumper, if you want to learn how to darn your socks, if you want to learn how to embroider and sew a patch into your pair of jeans, we've got the YouTube tutorials for you. Clothes you have already, obviously. And the clothes you have already. <clears throat> and how you can transform those. We have something that you love, but it's not quite right. How can you transform that? How can you use, you know, patches? How can you get another garment and, you know, em- em- embellish it and yeah. look at a way of, of actually upcycling the clothing already in our wardrobe? How about someone who wants to start a label? Like, are there some tips to, to you know, what to look out for if... Uh, if you want to do a, you know create a conscious brand mm-hmm. um yes i mean we, we've worked with the british council on a professional skills toolkit for mm-hmm. designers i don't think that's widely available at at the moment but that's certainly something that we are are working on and i, I would say embed transparency from yeah. the outset whenever i do talks people you know young designers always say oh but it's so difficult to be transparent we want to protect our sources we don't want bigger brands yeah. to come to us and steal our producers and i do completely understand that i know that is an issue but there's a lot of different ways in which you can be transparent um you know obviously we'd like people to reveal you know the names the faces the locations the artisans but if people really feel like they can't there's still a lot of ways in which they can be transparent you know for patrick cootie even just showing the gps coordinates it shows that we've mapped it shows that we know it shows that we know our our sources you can look at um, people like Bruno Peters from Honest Buy, who had full cost transparency. So just look at the different ways in which you can be transparent and participate 
in fashion revolution we've got downloadable i made your clothes posters which you can give to the people whether that's in a, a factory a small workshop whether it's an artisan community and actually participating will help to bring visibility to those workers which helps to bring greater recognition to to the work and to their skills and we'll give you a lot of information on where you can start um if you want to to create um, a conscious brand um, exactly and there's get involved packs online for, yeah. for for brands for retailers for producers so all of that is on our website Great. Um, just a last question, Kerry. So based on your 27 years of experience in the industry, okay. um, you probably had this one before, but I'm still super curious to hear where you see fashion in 10 years. The, the fashion industry is slow to change. It's going uh-huh. to be slow to change. It is, it's very opaque. It's historically relied on subcontracting in particular in countries like Bangladesh which are fulfilling you know, a, a large quantity of the, the orders for some of the fast fashion brands and we are going to see change happen quickly. The average increase in transparency between our 2017 and 2018 fashion transparency index was just 1%. Although actually the brands, the 100 brands that were surveyed in 2017 and 2018 did show a 5% increase in transparency. So that does show how the Fashion Transparency Index is pushing them to disclose more year on year. But we aren't going to see great leaps forward. There will always be certain brands who are really pushing the standards in terms of transparency so we will see you know some brands which are a lot more transparent than others but there are so many laggards so many brands scoring you know between 0 to 10 percent on the index Mm -hmm. and a good number of brands scoring zero so we really have a long way to go until we have uh you know even even a partly transparent industry and without transparency we have no way of knowing whether brand policies and procedures are really effective and whether they're really driving change for the people making our clothes and so brands you know we can read their csr report and they can look you know that they can sometimes look really good but if you drive down to the detail about what they're really doing about what their impact is on human rights mm-hmm. on the environmental impact in the communities where they're working often they don't really tell you very much so mm-hmm. in 10 years time we will see progress but i still feel like we'll, we'll be a long way from having a, a trans- transparent sustainable fashion industry but hopefully in 10 years we will really have seen a lot of progress in terms of technological um, um, progress to separate cotton from synthetics at a um, you know at at a significant level without any degradation in in the raw materials and this will then have been rolled out at scale and will be incorporated into into a lot of uh, brand use of of materials we're certainly seeing more commitments from certainly those those pioneering brands and a lot of other sort of brands and and retailers who are committing to more sustainable um, fibres to a percentage of um, recycled or renewable raw materials and I think that's where we really will see a lot of change in 10 years time. We, We absolutely need to because we can't keep on depleting the earth's resources for for you know materials like no. raw materials like cotton which are so water intensive and often come from countries where there's a, 
uh, uh, water shortages. So we really need to see a lot of change in terms of renewable raw materials. So the planet will um, basically tell us <laughs> that we do need to make a change. And I'm sure, Kerry, all your very hard work uh, will definitely also show to pay off. Um, thank you for doing this important work with Fashion Revolution. And if you, the listener, is interested in joining, there are about 100 Fashion Revolution outlets in the world. So contact your local one. Volunteers are always welcome. I'm sure you agree with me, Kerry. Um, oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> and, um, and you can definitely help make a difference um thank you so much for joining us uh Kara summers and um we look forward to following your uh work in the future with fashion revolution thank you very much thank you wow so much work has been done and so much is yet to be done in our dear fashion industry it was super inspiring to speak to Kara summers and I hope that you've been inspired as well to take these small steps and the advice given by Kerry so we can all do our part to speak up in a very loud voice so that the fashion industry will indeed hear us. So remember to ask where your clothes came from and thanks for listening. Remember to comment and rate us on iTunes. You've listened to Matilda Moyel with Kerry Summers here at Orgayana's podcast. Bye-bye.